Welcome, everyone, to the Top Producer Podcast. I am Paul Nieper, your host, and today I'm going to, we're going to have a conversation with Joe Kessie, who is a, uh, I guess, a retired or semi-retired banker from Northern Indiana. So is, am I correct, Joe? Are you retired or just semi-retired? What, what would be the technical term for Joe right now? Yeah, I did retire from banking in March after a 40-year banking career. Um, so I'm probably going to do a few things part-time because uh, maybe some consulting with some some of my larger client, former clients and some stuff like that. So, but no, I'm not, uh, don't have to be at the office anymore at eight o'clock every day. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, cause I'm sort of like you, I retired from CLA at the end of last year, but I think between podcasting and writing and blogging and, and so on. Matter of fact, I was just reviewing something dealing with farm programs. Uh, I'm, I'm in the office, my little home office. That's a nice, my commute now is about 60 feet from my bedroom to, uh, to my home okay. office. Uh, I, I'm in there usually by 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. And, uh, but usually I don't work till five or six. I, I'm, I'm trying to get done by two or three in the afternoon. Although today, uh, today I got, uh, uh, three podcast tapings and another call on 1031 exchanges. Uh, like I told you before we got on here, by the end of that four sessions, I'll be wore out. So uh, but, uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> enough about me, Joe. Let's let's start off uh, with your background, where you grew up, went to college and all that good stuff. Yeah, yeah well, I'm thinking we're probably about the same age, Paul. So maybe some of this will be similar. I, uh, I grew up in Whitley County, Indiana, which is northeast part of the state, about 25 miles west of Fort Wayne is geographically is where we're at and grew up on a small uh, 200 acre livestock hay and grain farm uh, pretty pretty diverse to bale a awful lot of hay uh, small bales I always joke my uh, I couldn't talk my dad into round bale until I went to college and then right away he got a, a round baler but anyway <laughs> it, was, it was it was good training good good workout uh, yeah, so we had mainly cattle. We had a veal calf operation, and uh, and then during uh, high school, I had an extremely uh, talented vocational ag teacher. So I was really involved in FFA throughout my high school, and he he's probably the one that got me to go to Purdue. So that's where I I studied uh, ag finance at Purdue. Uh, started there in '79, graduated in May of '83, and then you know thinking back, I mean '79, I mean farming was still booming and so by the time I graduated in 83 obviously the farm crisis was kind of full tilt so big big change in the farm economy those years I was at college and uh, in fact I think I think only about 25 percent of the graduates in the ag school had jobs at the time of graduation in May that's how much the difference compared to today where we nobody can find you know, there's two positions probably for every opening. So that yeah. was a little different, but. Um, well, and, and you and I are similar in ages because I graduated from college in 83 and now I wasn't going into ag, but we sort of had a little bit of a recession going on in 81, 82, 83, that time period. It wasn't just the farm economy that was having issues. It was the other part of the economy. So it was it was definitely difficult to find a job versus, you know, a year or two years ago or even right now. You know, if you need a job, you can find one pretty easily. Sure. So you ended up so, going uh, to Purdue. Yeah. So I obviously had a great, great experience there. A lot of great professors. Um, I mean, later on, after I'd been working in 91, I got my MBA and then 
graduate school back in 95. But yeah, so between my junior and senior years at Purdue, I got an internship with the farm credit system. And so I had a good thing about my senior years. I had a job offer to, to work at my local PCA association after graduation. So that was good. And so that's kind of how I got interested in banking. Of course, I always liked the number side of the business. So, and then when I graduated in 83, the basically from the farm crisis, the farm credit bank in Louisville just started this program of professional loan officer training program, kind of to help educate lenders. And, and, and actually it was like going to college for 15 weeks and getting paid for it. It was excellent training. So, so I did that. And then my first three years, I was at uh, Albion PCA just to, back at that time, they had a lot smaller farm credit association. So I was a loan officer for them. And then uh, 86, I went to uh, a local bank. I was their ag lender for uh, 11 years. And then I finished my 26 years. I was at Lake City Bank and uh, I was always in charge of their ag lending division. And so uh, explain to the listeners out there, what what is Lake City Bank? I, I'm assuming it's a what I would call more of a community bank, but just uh, describe what type of a bank it might be for yeah, the we're, listeners. We're, we're, I guess you'd call us a good sized community bank. We're about the second or largest, you know, bank in Indiana. It's only based in Indiana. We, I think we have about 53 branches, but um, 151 years old. So, uh, but uh, yeah, it was a community bank, but our, our asset size was six and a half billion. So, uh, the good thing was I could pretty much uh, loan limits wasn't a problem for most of the farm businesses that I dealt with. So I mean, we could go up to 50 or 60 million. And so, you know, we did have quite a few uh, agribusiness relationships too. So that, that loan volume really, or that loan limits really helped us uh, bank kind of however we wanted to. And so the bank, was the focus of the ag was it statewide or was there certain sections of of the state that really focused more in on on the uh, ag side yeah really we we tried to stay in our footprint and we our footprint was basically the north half of indiana so he's definitely there went up into this southern michigan just over the line some so but yeah all our all our loans were in that area and it was a pretty diverse uh, portfolio obviously corn soybeans seed corn, quite a few seed corn producers and tomatoes, and then a lot of several poultry integrators, pretty good size. And then obviously had dairy hogs and um, finance quite a few grain elevators and agronomy providers. So it's pretty diverse portfolio. And we were, we were one of the largest ag banks in the state. So I'm going to put you on the spot here, Joe. Um, and, and now that you're retired, you can probably answer this question. So of those type of farm producers, you know, corn, soybeans, hogs, dairy, what was the best ones to work with and what was the worst ones to work with? Uh, um, I, <laughs> I liked them all. That's, that's pretty rewarding. But, you know, as far as uh, knowing, knowing the numbers and having good financial statements, you know, I'd have to say my... Uh, you know, my large poultry integrators, I mean, obviously they were, you know, they were getting, you know, reviewed statements or audited statements. So, you know, had good information to go on. And a lot of the grain elevators, you know, we were getting pretty good information on that. But, and, but, and then uh, 
you know, some of the larger farm operations, they obviously were using accountants to help prepare their statements, but we had a pretty good system. So even if they weren't getting, if it was a just a producer, if they weren't getting um, statements from the accountant, you know, we had a pretty good approval system and uh, felt like we got pretty good information, even if they weren't totally relying on an accountant to produce those statements. Yeah, and I, I tend to agree with your statement in that I like working with all of those producers, but I think the typically what I find is livestock producers have usually better accounting records or more precise accounting records than, than let's say, a grain uh, operation would have. And I think part of that is they have to know their numbers because their margins are so much thinner at times than than a grain operation might be. Yeah, some of the larger dairy operations, I mean, they had they had excellent numbers and systems in place. So, you know, that was really rewarding to go over that each month with them, you know, because and they had a they had a consultant that was kind of helping do that. But it seemed like they were definitely farther ahead than some straight grain operations as far as that kind of data. And I think early in your career, and we were talking offline a little bit about this, but early in your career, of course, you've been involved with the farm financial standards for many, many years. But I think part of that process allowed you to start helping farmers understand their records and help provide better service to them. Just just go through some of that. Yeah, so like I say, that uh, loan officer training program, I, I got right out of college. So I... Right from the start in 83, I was using accrual earnings, and a lot of times we'd use an earned, earned gain uh, calculation, which basically was a cross-reference. You know, it just takes out inflation and deflation and, you know, see what happens from earnings. But basically, all through my career, I, you know, we calculated earnings both those ways. So, obviously, I had, I remember, uh, you know, 86, we had, the bank I was at, we uh, purchased the coordinated financial statements, I think Norm Brown originally started those but you know i was out here as a kid 26 teaching uh, 60 year old plus farmers how you know why they need to fill out their balance sheet on 1231 and and uh, you know going through all those statements but you know back in the you know he's talking 83 you know to 87 i mean i always tell people that was i felt fortunate to start when i did because i got to see everything that could go wrong in banking or, or fi ag finance, you know, during that farm crisis. I mean, it was a little more easy to be objective because, you know, I hadn't made those original loans, but you know, I was working with the clients to get through that. So as far as, you know, changing back then was, as far as the farmer side, I think they were a lot more receptive because they were just glad to have a lender that was working with them. And uh, yeah. so, yeah, so basically that system and I basically took those and made a trend sheet. And then when the farm financial guidelines came out, I kind of put that into the trend sheet and calculate all those ratios. But what the real advantage, I mean, obviously it was an advantage to my bank as far as having known who was making money and who wasn't. But the other good thing was, I mean, in the late 80s, early 90s, there was some tremendous opportunities to take advantage of. You know, ground was down to a thousand dollars an acre or less in our area. And, uh, you know, now it's, easily 15,000 plus, but I could show where I had some operations that were making, you know, adequate money, even though their net worth still might be going down for some deflation, but I could show they had earnings and we, I helped them take advantage of some of those opportunities. So, yeah, um, 
I formed some long-term relationships. So I really used that as a, as a sales tool too. I mean, all my customers look forward to going over that trend sheet each year. And, uh, you know, it really helped me as far as, a, you know, bank examiners. And we never had any problem with that because we were on top of it. You know, the unfortunate thing is, uh, eggs kind of gilly this when things get better, some of that kind of gets put by the wayside and somebody may not require something. So I think we could have been a lot further along as far as the total industry, but you know, things got better. And then, you know, some, some lenders didn't require that or, you know, but anyways, that, that served me well. And, uh, you know, I was, I was fortunate. I mean, I had some customers, my customers for all 40 years, even though I'd been at three different places and I, banked a lot of three generations that I'd worked with over the years. So that was very rewarding. So now as you look back on the 80s, um would what do you think was the primary reason why we had the farm crisis? And and again, I'm sort of asking that off the top. It wasn't I didn't prime you for this, but um you know I, I have my opinions on it, but I'm just curious and and you weren't there right before it started. I mean, well, you were pretty close to when it started, but what what yeah, was, was you think the primary impetus for it? Uh, you know, obviously, you know, even you know, Purdue and other institutions, nothing against them, but I mean, you know, you know, leverage was the thing to do in the seventies. I mean, yep. the more leverage you could uh have the the better is is going to be you know uh you know inflation and interest rates were fairly low so um you know i guess the so basically and then obviously nobody really knew if they were making money or not in the 70s there's probably quite a few operations that weren't making money but their net worth was going up you know so so that was part of it. and then, then obviously higher rates and then you know the grain embargo and stuff like that reacted but um you know i think a lot of people say, well, are we, you know, higher inflation and rates going up today? Are we, is it going to be the 80s all over again? I mean, I really don't think so because, you know, back in the, back in the 70s or early 80s, about all the farm rates were, all of them were variable, no matter if it was a real estate note or a, a machinery note, or obviously operating was, but basically all that debt was variable. So when the rates skyrocketed, basically all the debt on the balance sheet you know, the cost of having that went up versus today, you know, about all any kind of term debt is fixed, you know, at pretty attractive rates. So the, the higher rates today, I mean, yeah, they're affecting operating and, and if you make a new purchase, but the, the other debt that's on the balance sheet, you know, is not affected. So, I mean, gosh, I locked in 2% on my house a couple of years ago. So that, <laughs> you know, under getting 5% on this, money market so yeah. i mean but anyways but that, so i think that's the you know one big comparison and then overall farm balance sheet you know it was pretty leveraged in the 70s versus now i would say overall it's it's not so it's a lot different leverage uh, position yeah. and then i think overall the the overall management level is definitely better today than it would have been in the 70s i mean um you know, a lot of the inefficient operations, unfortunately, didn't make it. But right, right. So, well, and I agree. I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, another thing that happened in the late '70s too. I think that helped uh, 
you know, hurt the the farm operations was the high increase in in oil and gas. You know, you had the double shock right. OPEC uh, one and OPEC two. Of course, that also led to help lead to inflation and and uh, you know when interest rates are high. And like you say, the variable that's what caused a lot of the issues for the farmers that are leveraged up in the '70s when rates were low. Now rates are high, and you know, you, you, farming typically is a three to five percent return on the land and maybe well plus inflation but you know if your interest rate is 15 percent and at the best you can get is a five percent return especially with the embargo you know it's going to be hard to make money right right okay so i think yeah i mean not that things might get tighter but i i think there's a lot of differences that that i think we're sitting better uh to weather some downturns I, I i totally agree and i've i've been to some farm auctions matter of fact i bought land in iowa at a farm auction but it seems like a lot of those auctions in the last few years where farmers have been buying a lot of it's been with cash you know they've built up a fair amount of cash during you know you got the mfp payments the cfap payments the yeah. increase in in pricing due to the ukraine uh, Russia conflict that uh, they've definitely built up some pretty good balance sheets now. Does that potentially create some issues later on if they've sucked too much out of their working capital to buy that land? And if they have to recapitalize that land at higher rates, would that affect them? Uh, you know, time will tell. So, yeah, I mean, that's so the farm, you know, the farm balance sheet is so much better. Like, I say, there's a lot of farm cash buyers but then you know there's also other strong interest in invest you know investors and investor funds that none of that was there in the 80s either to kind of support the market so there's just all kinds of man so yeah this the sales we've seen in real estate this year it continues to go up and demand is very strong and, and, and there's so, a limited amount there's a limited amount on the market which yeah yeah right. and in your area the typical prices in that mid-teens is that what you're seeing right now that uh, yeah, 14 I 15 thousand so for good land yeah the rougher ground which was kind of where I, the kind of ground i grew up on you know 10 to 11 but the better ground yeah you're talking you know 16 to 18 plus i mean and then you go north of us there's a strong amish uh mennonite communities that really support values too so uh, and then obviously got really good in in our area, obviously, very strong employment uh, opportunities. So, um, it just a lot of demand, just in, you know, limited resource and land. Now we know in ag, you know, there's a problem finding workers. Is in the banking uh, industry is is the same type of issues seeing in in that industry? Yeah, it's it's definitely gotten tougher. You know. Um, I think we always, you know, was able to track just because, you know, we had a really good reputation and everything. But, yeah, it's definitely tougher to find find employees. Uh, and it's definitely an issue for my larger farm operations. So almost labor seems to be the limiting factor on you know, in a lot yeah. of cases. Yeah. Okay, Joe, we're going to take a quick break for a sponsor mission. We'll come back and uh, rejoin the conversation. 
Get timely updates about taxation, accounting, succession planning, and other issues that are unique to farmers and agribusiness processors. Find out about major agribusiness events and how to comply with new laws that affect your business. Subscribe to Farm CPA at blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness and experience the CLA promise. blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness. Welcome, everyone, back to the Top Producer Podcast. I'm Paul Neifer, your host, and uh, we're going to rejoin our conversation with Joe Kessie from Northern Indiana. So, Joe, we had mentioned a little bit that you have been involved with the Farm Financial Standards Council. When did you get involved, and what has been your involvement with with that organization? Yeah. Well, I was I was a I was definitely a user right from the start when they first published those. I, I remember I was getting my MBA time and I did an Excel spreadsheet to calculate all the ratios that they published and put that in a trend sheet. So I was a I was an early user the first when they were first published there. I think that was around 90 or 91. And then uh, probably 15 or 16 years ago, I was uh, from the American Bankers Association. I was asked to be the representative uh, from the ABA on the Farm Financial Board. So served on the board. I've been on the board then since 15 plus years and uh, you know, been co-chair of the Finance Committee here for several years. Yeah, and it, it's a good organization. Uh, of course, I've been a member not quite as long as you, but uh, it is getting, you know, it's getting close to being uh, as long as you. So, uh, um, and, and the yeah, good thing for really, you. It's really exciting to see because, I mean, I, to me, every year it keeps getting better and more diverse and there's a lot of activity going on. So it's a great, it's a great tool, honestly, for everybody, both, you know, accountants and farmers and and the lenders as a resource. And uh, yeah, just I've been, it's really neat to see some of the other special projects that the council's getting involved in. So yeah, compared to when I even first came on 15 years ago, I'm just seeing a lot more activity, memberships up. And it's, it is, a you know, always enjoy the, the group. It's fun to get together and uh, build relationships. Yeah, and I, I think for the listeners out there, if you're a farm operation, you're thinking, why would I ever want to join this organization? There are several farmers. You know, farmers is a key core group for the council. And I think if you want to, hey, learn about this or end up having good relationships with other farmers and you're trying to learn what is accrual accounting and how does it help my farm operation, I would highly recommend uh, actually, next year's uh, the conference that we have is is almost always the last week in July. Uh, next year it'll be in Louisville, Kentucky, and then actually the following year it's in Lexington, Kentucky. So for okay. listeners in that Midwest area, it's fairly easy to get to. And sure. if you're interested, the website's very easy to go to. It's FFSC, so Frank Frank Sam Charlie dot org. Uh, you know, go take a look at it. I, I would highly recommend it for anybody that's interested in, in you know, learning about accrual accounting and how to implement it in their farm operation. Yeah, I would echo that, Paul. You, you've been a great for your organization. You gave us a lot more uh, publicity, and I think a lot more people are aware of it uh, 
because of some of the stuff that you've done and some of your talks throughout the country. So that's really helped also. And then uh, did you have any mentors, uh, either education or in your career? What type of mentors did you have? Oh, yeah, I had a lot, but there's there's always three that I'd mention. Uh, you know, number one would be my dad. Uh, I grew up on a small farm, but, you know, working alongside my dad, you know, I guess I don't think, can't remember him really asking me to do something. He just worked alongside him. And then one kind of story I always tell about my dad is when I was 10 years old, we, dad uh, constructed a confined veal barn. So, and instead of paying me a wage, dad gave me 10% of the net income off of each group. And at that time, it was kind of easy because he sold a group every 16 weeks and you easily calculate you now how he came up on it. But that was such a great experience, you know, not uh, kind of great experience in business that, you know, sometimes I was making really good money for a 10 year old kid, you know, doing you know, three hours of chores a day, but then for some <laughs> 16 weeks I'd work and get $0. So yep. another good life yep. experience. So I always, besides the work ethic and the opportunity to grow up on the farm, my, just my dad allowing me to, and then actually when I was a couple years older, he let me do the project summary. So I kind of got exposed to the books in an early, early age. And, I think I can never thank my dad enough for that for that lesson, and I think it you know encouraged what I did in life later on. And then uh, the second person would definitely be my vocational ag teacher, Bill McVeigh. I mean, he had a passion and love for agriculture that was contagious, and you know I wouldn't have gone to Purdue without him. When I was a senior, we won the uh, two other classmates and I won the National Farm Business Management Contest, and. FFA in Kansas City and that you know that was a, that definitely my highlight of my high school career and you know definitely got me interested in what I was doing so I would always mention him and you know FFA and Voag's critical for a lot of uh, kids and I was definitely one of them and then probably you know during my working career probably got to meet Dave Cole you know, in the late, late eighties. And I consider Dave definitely a mentor of mine. And, uh, you know, he did a lot of seminars for our banks, for our clients. And, you know, I adapt, adopted a lot of the stuff that Dave was uh, recommending, you know, and of course he was part of the farm financial task force originally. And yep. uh, so, yeah, I was an early adapter of a lot of his stuff. And yeah, he's been a great resource for all the ag lenders besides the farmers, yeah, definitely. I've always appreciated his guidance and his dedication to the industry. I mean, he's a lot. Man, you're doing the same thing, so that's neat. <laughs> Unfortunately, I get to know both of you. So, <laughs> okay. Well, good. Uh, now, uh, you are, you know, semi-retired. I'm going to say, but do you have any time for any hobbies? Ah, yeah. Uh, I mean, these are all stuff my wife and I enjoy doing together. So we love bicycling. Started playing pickleball a couple of years ago. I can't say I'm any good and i um, got a new knee maybe because of it last year but <laughs> so that if the, the new knee's going good maybe got some back issues but we love doing that we love traveling we got some nice trips and then i got we have uh, five grandkids seven and under so any time i can spend with them i would say is a very rewarding hobby <laughs> yeah i have uh, four that are all under the age of five so uh matter of fact we have a birthday party coming up at the end of October for the 
youngest grandson and then our youngest granddaughter she won't be one until next april so uh, we got plenty of things yeah. going on with them so uh, yeah. uh, is is there anything that keeps you up at night well there's, there's drugs for that so that helps but uh, <laughs> uh, uh i mean the political environment i mean you can always say that and that just obviously seems to be getting worse but we won't go there but um one thing i'm kind of hoping it dies down a little bit, but you know, the, uh, you know, China's brick to road initiative in 2013 or so is when they came out and uh, nobody was paying much attention to that. I mean, Dave Cohen talked about it and you probably have too, but um, I was on a webinar for, I think it was Illinois, you know, and there's, there's like 90 million acres in Brazil that could come into production that wouldn't touch the rainforest. It's just, you know, pasture land right now, and the only limiting factor is, you know, roads and rail to get that crop to the ports, you know, and through China's brick to road, I mean, they're, they're providing all that. And uh, so I know China's, you know, port kind of struggling a little bit financially. So, but anyways, I mean, and I agree, no, we're not making any more land in the United States. No, you know, 90, 90 more million acres in Brazil is our whole corn or soybean crop. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not all going to happen at once, but it's, you know, we got to think globally, not just in our backyard when it, you know, when you're talking commodity prices and stuff. So, I mean, I still think there's tons of support for the ag real estate. I mean, you know, long-term, you know, Brazil can be just as productive and I think most of our clients would love to pull in that size fields, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, so it's definitely, I mean, there's a lot of things to watch, but when I when I learned how many acres that could come in without really touching the rainforest or being those kind of issues, it is kind of scary. And, you know, I'm afraid China would rather buy from somebody else than us if they had a choice. So, yeah. Well, and you know, I think what is it next year? Brazil soybean production is estimated at what 164 million metric tons, and just 10 years ago it was half that number. So uh, you know it is definitely growing a lot. So, uh, uh, but I think that's you know why maybe sustainable aviation fuel might be able to help uh, both the soybean and the uh, and the uh, corn farmer in the U.S. And the more that we can bring that production to keep it in the U.S you know, the, pro the better off for the farmland values and for the farmers probably. Right. And then what's your, and finally, what's your uh, definition of success in farming? Um, I guess, you know, definitely it's not the size of the operation. I mean, I think you have to be big enough and profitable enough to cover the, the wants and needs of both the the owner and the, any family members involved in the operation and then, you know, any key employees. So, you know, definitely having a big enough operation and efficient enough operation that can cover all those needs. But it was, you know, obviously as on the lender side, it was always neat because I was one of the few people that kind of knew if, if somebody was successful or not successful, you don't always learn everything just by going down the road, but yeah, you know, and still having a, and having all those things I just mentioned, and then still having a, a quality of life and the, family relationship, I think is important, but, um, you know, there's a lot of efficient, very efficient, you know, two to 6,000 acre grain operations that I work with and, uh, you know, their cost of production, you know, on a unit basis is very comparable to large ones. So, I mean, you know, I was afraid like 
10, 15 years ago, everybody thought, you know, there's, everybody's going to have to be, you know, 15, 20,000 plus acres. But I, I, I saw from the number side, you don't have to be that. You just have to be efficient and, and make sure you're covering cost and, yep. and, and keeping everybody happy. But one, well, I think as you get larger, your ability to be an effective manager gets less and less. And then also a lot of those larger farm operations as a family seem to split up, you know, the the cousins want to have their own. So I, I think you're right that two to six is sort of what I've seen on the sweet spot for the typical Midwest corn soybean operation for sure. Yeah, I mean, and of course, once you get over that, you're talking another complete line of equipment and yep. finding, finding key employees to run. I mean, that, like I said, back on labor's kind of a limiting issue on some of that. Oh, yep. so. Especially in your area where you got a lot of demand from, you know, the RV makers are in your neck of the woods. And, uh, and yeah. I think you have very low unemployment up there, don't you? Yeah, very. I mean, I mean, RV slowed down a little bit. I mean, it was booming for so long, but no, no. I mean, Warsaw, Indiana, where I worked out, I mean, we're the orthopedic capital of the world. So a lot of orthopedic manufacturers. So no, I mean, the economy's been blessed to have all that kind of industry in our area. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Joe, before we sign off? Yeah, I don't think so, I mean, uh, Thank you for the opportunity to be on and appreciate everything you do, Paul, for the industry. And look forward to seeing you at the next meetings. Okay, sounds good. Again, uh, Joe, thanks for taking time out of your day. And this has been the Top Producer Podcast. And this is Paul Nefer, your host, signing off. Mm-hmm.